Okay, this week, instead of saying, can you introduce yourself for the audience, this is going to be something a little bit different. And it's basically going to be talking to each other. But mainly, I want to revisit a, a conversation with Richard, because it's how this podcast got established would be a nice way to discuss um, where we are with the podcast and how we got to where we are in uh, this lovely series of interviews. So yeah, I'm here with Richard. Thank you for joining me for the meeting. My pleasure, Simon. Um, and like you say, this is this is how it all started. Um, the idea for Painting Insights podcast is Simon interviewed me on his channel, um, Good Values podcast, which yeah. is on YouTube. And we got talking and Simon interviewed me. I think it was the first podcast. Yeah, it was the first podcast interview I'd had. And I was used to working on Zoom and teaching on Zoom. Um, but we had a really good interview. And then talking at the end, um, you know, I said, would you be interested in, in doing a podcast focused on painting and talking to painters? And the main reason for that was, in a way, because many artists, including myself, spend a lot of time in the studio. And we're often looking for things to listen to. And I listen to all kinds of things, from true crime, true crime podcasts to football to music to you know whatever it is. Um, I do listen to some art podcasts, but I always felt that there was a little bit of a gap in the market. We're talking to painters about what it means to be a painter. And sometimes the grand ideas that they have, the philosophy that underpins their practice, but also the little things, you know, how, how do you go about the day? How do you set up your studio, your colours? How do you deal with creative block? All these types of things. And I remember when I was really starting to take painting seriously, um, I would try and look for this information online or in books. And for me, it really was the, the basic things that were most important to me. So when I look on Instagram or on someone's website or see their work in the gallery, we see the finished piece. Sometimes we see the workings, we see the finished piece. Um, but I know as a painter that it doesn't arrive just like that. There are many things that go into it. And often what happens is, and I have this kind of vision or view or bias sometimes, that we look at a professional painter and we, we see that their talent is obvious, but that talent is often a struggle. And there are many frustrations that go into having that final work that goes up on their Instagram page or on a gallery wall. So really, my inspiration for this podcast was to get behind that a little bit and to find out a little bit more about what makes artists tick, but also what ticks them off as well and gets them frustrated. Yeah. So... 
Simon and I talked and, and that's how the podcast was born. Yeah. No, I'm very appreciative. It's uh, really interesting because, like you said, it's you look at the artwork and you know that it's taking a series of very um, complex decisions which you have to make in order to find a balance, correct mistakes or hide mistakes or push past a, an uncomfortable middle point in a painting and um, things like that aren't things you can see when you're looking at the final product or preliminary sketches. So to try to extract some um, information from artists is something which I think is invaluable. Recently, I was sent an episode of a podcast from a friend, uh, a female artist who I've stayed friends with for quite a while now. And she sent me this episode because they talk about education. She knows that I've got a difficult education background, really, as far as wrestling with different philosophies that you can find in schools to what aligns with your own and the podcast that she sent me the first half wasn't about art it was about the person's background and where they lived and how the interviewer knew the artist and because it wasn't about art and I wasn't familiar with the artist or the interviewer it was difficult and it's only because I was drawing and really had a long time to to kind of uh listen to it without needing to change it otherwise I would have skipped the second half of the podcast was fantastic because it was a bit of knowledge and a bit of shared information it's one of the things I think is really valuable about what you've brought to my um to this collaboration for me is that it's gets straight into the meat of being an artist and that's what I find really interesting and it's really helped me evolve how I speak to people and how I understand the experience of the interview and conversation on a podcast really developed. I was just revisiting today my first conversation with you, and it's quite different to how I would approach an interview now. Obviously, I'm not formally interviewing you like I was initially, but if I were, I would be a lot more considerate with how I approached a question than how blunt and kind of terse the question was back then I'd say you know what does art mean to you and that was the question you know giving you no time to actually process anything and watching you discuss topics with artists made me appreciate how much space you gave them to actually get into the right frame of mind to answer a question and that's really uh, I really just appreciate the experience it's a real privilege to uh, to sit in on the on the conversations really so you know, that's great and I think as well that this journey on the podcast is interesting because I'd never been interviewed anybody before and mm. was quite nervous about it but I thought just you know, talk as if you were talking to a fellow artist in a pub or at their studio or something like that and I guess it's that curiosity, like your curiosity, to do your podcast, to talk to artists, to find out what it is that they do, how they think. And, you know, that it, in many ways is a podcast about conversations um, and not necessarily just hard interviews, mm. because we can know about the artist's work by you know, looking on their website, following them 
on Instagram and stuff. But that's, like I was saying earlier, that's just the surface element of it. Mm. So that curiosity about finding out more and having those kind of leading questions in a way or, um, you know, when I ask a question and I notice it, I tend to sort of do a preamble (laughs) sometimes five minutes before and then I ask the question. (laughs) Yeah. But it's that, again, it's that curiosity and it's that seeing whether people's knowledge kind of aligns. It's like, you know, I experience this. Do you feel the same? Does the same kind of thing happen to you? Mm, yeah. I mean, it really was a, a shit. It, it was very fortuitous for me because of meeting you on my first podcast. Well, not my first, but technically I had a first podcast during uni that ended in a certain way and then I started interviewing people because of how my first podcast ended I spoke to a friend on Instagram and she did me the favor of saying I'll be a guest and I'll get you another guest and we'll just see if we can figure out how you can you know start because I was working with a co-host on my first podcast so my second one was starting from scratch and I just thought I don't want to stop podcasting all of a sudden I want to keep going because it's a nice contribution to the online discourse i think and to give something positive and creative is uh something which i think i'd appreciate uh if i you know were someone else and the first season was mainly people who i knew or people who knew someone who i knew you know so it was a favor of a favor and then the second season was people who i didn't know and you were in the second group and i was reaching out to people on instagram mostly illustrators and because I mainly illustrate, which I'm trying to do 50-50 lately and it's not been happening, but it's that's my ongoing uh, aspiration, really. But there were more illustrators. And then towards the end, I had Tim Benson and then I had you as two painters, just in, uh, you know, 24 episodes, two painters. And... I was a little nervous with both of you because I thought I'm so used to talking to illustrators. It's such a shared language that I don't have as much experience with painting. And I felt I'd be out of my depth. And as much as I know your work and I'm a fan of your work, I didn't um, I didn't know how the episode would go. So I was a little nervous. And I remember talking on the phone to someone saying, I don't know what I'm going to do. I know that he works with palette knives. I'm really curious about certain aspects of palette knife works. I don't know much of that. Um, and then afterwards calling them saying it was amazing. It was an amazing conversation. I could have spoken to him for another hour and they were really happy for me saying, that's great. I'm glad I knew it would go well. And it was just happenstance really to have that opportunity for you to take me up on my offer of being a guest. Cause a lot of people either don't because I'm still establishing myself or because, you know, they may be shy on camera or whatever it is that makes some people uh, hesitant. So that was something which uh, has changed the trajectory of my latter part of my yeah. year and hopefully the you know years to come because I really enjoy this format and the opportunities to listen in to two professional working painters discussing different facets of their uh, daily life and yearly kind of struggles of putting out work, exhibits and sales and all types of different sides of it. Yeah, the whole spectrum. I think as well with it, I mean, I've 
always been someone who, who has been happy articulating um, the ideas behind my work and how that links in a way to art history, to contemporary practices, to, to other painters. And, you know, it is, I mean, I know there's you know, many artists who would be happy to talk um, as those who aren't necessarily happy to talk because they let their work talk for them. Um, you know, that's the main form of expression. But, you know, I think I've, I found when we had that interview, you made me feel relaxed and you gave me that space to kind of talk. Um, and it's funny looking back at it, now and just seeing some of my mannerisms in it as well you know it's it's not that long ago but I can see how I've got more used to sort of speaking within this context whereas before I was more used to writing mm. about it um but I think it's a good thing and you know this goes to to you know our reasons for doing it is to try to open up a a discourse, a conversation around art and around painting um, that is adjacent to, connected to, um, and very much a holistic part of what we see visually uh, with social media nowadays. Yeah. Same with uh, captions and comments on posts. I'm often surprised by how many people engage in them with me. Um, often I've got nothing to say, so I'll just put the, the painting title on there. Mm. But sometimes I'll write something a bit more, um, you know, mindful in a sense. And I'm always surprised that people actually read them and engage. And whether it's an interest in you know, how the painter is thinking or um, curiosity, whatever it is. It's, it, it just gives that other dimension. And I think, and I realise that I do this too. So it's me surprised that people read in my captions, but I'm going and reading other people's because the painters who I admire and look up to again it goes back to that thing that looking for those bits of information around them as artists not just the finished products mm -hmm. um so so this podcast in a way is to give a long form version of that caption and and to have it on as whether it's a professional painter someone who's just interested in art or someone who's learning. Whilst you're painting, you can have this on in the background mm. and and it sort of enrich you in that sense to see that, you know, they're all painters, they're all artists, but they're all so different in mm. how they approach things. Um, there's commonalities, but there are also differences and distinctions. Yeah. With one outlier, with uh, I was recently uh, grateful to have Ralph as uh, Ralph Sanders as a guest. Yeah, not yeah, a yeah. lovely interviewer. Yeah, and I'm, I have to say, yeah, and I said this to Simon that 
on our Apple and Spotify and you know, all of the podcast thing. The interview with Ralph is the biggest download, so it's got the most amount of downloads, yeah. uh, which is really encouraging because um, it shows that you know, people are interested again in you know, how these things work, you know, these mm-hmm. galleries that seem like, um, you know, they're kind of opaque from the from the outside and artists are both excited and daunted by galleries and so it's really nice to get that, that insight. Yeah absolutely well I'd like to ask you if I could about the your experience with the podcast a little bit and I don't want to put you on the spot but I am interested to know because we've interviewed so many artists has anything kind of surprised you where you were anticipating um, I mean, I don't mean as though that doesn't seem like a, a logical answer. I just mean, you know, when you're we're talking to artists all the time, you, have you had anything where you think this has really revealed something that I hadn't anticipated, or it's um, it's basically brought something to light that I wouldn't have really considered until the experience of recording all these episodes? Um, not really. Not really. Um, I think it, what it has done in a way is, is again, we see these these artists, which maybe see a snapshot of them in their, their studio here and there, but you see the person, you know, the person behind it, and that's that's what I found with the interviewing, um, and you know, some of these artists I've followed and admired like way before I was a professional artist you know it was it's like so to kind of meet them in that sense and to talk talk to them is quite an honor and a privilege you know so it's that that kind of building connections and a, and a community that that has really really sort of helps me and inspired me but but also to to know and you know some artists opened up more about this than others that you know there are these universal kind of struggles um in being an artist whether it is you know from that business point of view you know nowadays we have to be kind of very business savvy about what we do or it's about things like finding a style mm. you know many people um think when they see my work that i just sort of landed upon this style how i paint it's taken many many years and um it all happened very very quickly so you know, I've got boxes and boxes of paintings over there, which are rejects. You know, mm. And it took years and years and years just to sort of experiment and make rubbish painting to then suddenly click and make a start. Now, to to understand that most artists actually sort of go through that process themselves, um, and. There were a few, I'm just thinking of Sonia here. Um, when we were talking to her, she was saying that she was in the city making 
geometric abstractions. Now, I used to do something similar, but then because of COVID and, you know, being in the city and not seeing the sky so much, did that become important? And how she then fused that with some of the training that she got from her mum. And, you know, sometimes all of these things click into place. For other people, it's been a much more linear process of going to art school, of developing style through, you know, training and all. So this is what's fascinated me, that even I, um, you know, who people think that my style has just sort of happened, I look at those other artists and just think, well, you know, they immediately just started painting like that but that's not the case so that's been the biggest insight for me is to is to learn about um painters journeys really yeah yeah Yeah. how about you well i mean as i was asking the question i was thinking i should really consider what because there are a few things which there is an artist who i think there was a couple who don't use sketchbooks and to me it's it's just it's not a you know should or shouldn't question it's more trying to conceive of being a professional working artist and never having to do that because you think it's kind of built into the structure but it's not always the case that someone will work things out on the canvas but it's kind of then there are people who say that they're self-taught and they'll impose this structure on their own you know off their own back and that's what always impresses me is how people will make their own um, kind of patterns of this is how the workday, you know, is built. And I really appreciated that, the how prolific certain people are. I'll tell you one thing which really surprised me, and this is a small thing in a way, but I've spoken to people in galleries when I've been having exhibitions this year about this person. It's Rod Major, who he was... Uh, the way that he would film his own painting, because he's an older gentleman, and he's much better at doing that than I am. When I'm, I've either been plan air painting, I'll set up a camera, I'll paint, I'll stress out about it and try and work it out, and then the battery will run out. I'll either change the battery until that one's dead, or I'm done, and I just need to paint the rest and get bits on my phone. But he's constantly doing vertical pictures as well as having horizontal images, and it's just such a an adaptation for someone of his vintage to be able to know that this is for reels, this is for the square format of Instagram, and then he'll have his uh, horizontal images for whatever video, if he wants it for YouTube or any other platform. He just has great coverage of his own work, and that really surprised and impressed me. I thought that older artists would be understandably set in their ways, where technology would be an inconvenience and would hinder the process. And he just seemed so comfortable with it that I was uh, I was very impressed by that. Yeah, that really yeah it's interesting as well because, I mean, social media can't be ignored now. I think we've talked to every artist about it, mm. um, especially Instagram. Um, you know, and I've said this before, I think, you know, Instagram was the a facilitator of my success mm. and a lot of people moan about Instagram and I have my, 
moments of moaning about it. But really, I mean, it's such a great tool. But you see now with all of these painters that we adapt how to use these tools for marketing. I saw a great post um, actually on threads the other day. Um, I should have screenshotted it, but I didn't. But it was someone saying, um, you know, artists quit moaning about Instagram and how this or how that's not happening. Um, before it, it was probably harder you would have to go around with your portfolio to this place, to that place. You know, you would have to basically print off things to send to galleries. You'd probably have to, especially if you lived in a rural location, travel to cities to visit galleries. In many ways, artists nowadays are, you know, in the most privileged position ever. Mm-hmm before in, in relation to two galleries, very few artists would get represented by galleries in the past. There aren't that many galleries in this country mm. um, or in Great Britain. To get yourself represented by a gallery, you've, you've had to go to the right art school and have the right contacts or be discovered somehow Um, but nowadays artists have all of these tools to hand learning how to use them is not that hard but it needs that hunger and it needs that same type of creativity you put into your work Mm. to be put into the marketing of your work because again you would have had to have done it in the past but it would have been much more uh, labor involved in it so with everybody we've talked to that element has has been really strong um, and on the podcast we we kind of sort of said that we use kind of someone's Instagram ranking in a way nowadays, um, you know, as, as a categoriser of whether they're suitable for an interview. It doesn't mean that, you know, that there are anybody beneath a certain amount is a bad artist or not worthy. But we're both aware in this of the marketing elements for, for our own podcast that we want to be able for this to grow. So we need to tap into also people that do have that platform. Mm-hmm. Um, so see, seeing that and seeing how, how artists have adapted and done it in their own ways, you know, there isn't one single way of doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, and whether they're plein air painters like Rod, who's on location and who's able to capture that process of, of his painting in, in development in the final piece. Um, or going back to Sonia, that she's able to do these gold, gold leaf paintings, but actually show parts of that very um, technical process. And Linda Mann as well, who 
you know, makes her reels. I mean, her paintings take six months to create. So how she um, works around that for creating content for social media, it's, uh, it's really, really important and creative and fun as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, that's that's been a, a real interesting insight because, again, we just see the surface. We see the, the, the painting that's posted on Instagram or the real. I can tell you behind those, there is a lot of both frustration and, you know, coming up with ideas to, to, to basically help get, get one's art out there. Yeah. Well, we actually had that. I think it was, it may have been Linda. Uh, I know my brother does this when there's some kind of promotional filming that's happening. Um, You're so in the moment painting that they may have missed that moment. So you just have to have either a dry brush or with my brother, he he uses spray paint because he does murals and he will just kind of, you know, go over the same point again with the same color because he's like, you've missed it. You know, you missed the point. So if you want to get the photograph, you're going to have to do it from me just pretending to paint the wall. Because it's difficult if you're that type of artist who's too engrossed with the piece to say, now I set up a camera and I work around a camera. Um, it's sadly built into my process now where I have a camera that's the pole is there. And I reach my arm around it and I'm looking at the other side of the pole. So it's basically, if for anyone listening, it's center in my head basically it's right in front of me to look down at the desk where I work uh, that's hopefully going to change in the future but um, but yeah what you were saying about trying to build up the platform is something which we've talked about and is a more uh, well-considered model than my initial podcast which I want conversations to be seen by as many people as possible because I see the value in them uh, as someone who relied on podcasts uh, a decade ago uh, when I came back to Wales it was 2014 and I remember sitting uh, in the living room or on the floor trying to do sign writing and trying to paint and I was just starting out and I was using uh, art podcasts as a way of trying to educate myself before I tried university to think, you know, what have people struggled with? What has their success been? What are their thoughts? What are their, you know, kind of roots through the industry uh, or the, you know, the landscape, as it were, to try and find a way to make a living as an artist, because that's very difficult. And that's something which in a way I'm trying to do, but in another way, I'm, I'm just trying to make sure that it's a creative um kind of business that I'm in really it doesn't necessarily have to be my art that makes me money because I'm not really there yet but I feel as though there are things which are professional practices that I'm engaged with so aside from you know doing the work and trying to build up the platform and the name and establish it we have discussed and and started filming for um, additional members of a, a Patreon channel and that's something which is already underway. It's it's not got a video up yet, but by the time this gets posted, it may have, um, because that's a, an additional part of the podcast channel 
that we are excited to offer and to develop really yeah absolutely and i think with it as well to to help it continue and develop like that like simon says the more people get to hear these podcasts the, the, the better um i mean we both get loads of enjoyment out of this and you know i think for me it gives me that respite from my own myopic kind of art practice um to talk to other people but heading into 2024 what we're looking to do is really just keep keep these coming there were no end of artists to to interview and mm-hmm. um, um we're also going to have try and have some panel um discussion so we could bring on um say still life painters to talk about you know the difference and their different approaches and so in regards to patreon basically patreon will help um us keep going in that sense and first to be able to create better content and have more people on there so do watch this space because we will be in um early 2024 putting the patreon out there would appreciate your your support with it um but our mission really is to 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 create this podcast as sort of mind food for artists, whether you know, you're amateur, professional, or just interested in how artists tick and what they do all day. Yeah. Um, you know, so, so that's the thing. I and mean, we're looking to, to build in 2024, hopefully try and get some, some sponsorship on board uh, as well, maybe um, from art manufacturers, um, along those lines what we don't want to be doing is um advertising memory foam mattresses or anything like that so um patreon for us is much more wholesome and um i would say it's um it's got more integrity for us for what we want to do this is you know this is for artists so yeah, yeah. so watch this space anyway and we would be filming and uh, recording exclusive patreon content absolutely i mean there's a few things i'm looking forward to next year and i'll mention uh let me think of the three yeah three things i think i'm looking forward to especially next year and that is um one would be getting some abstract artists on the channel because that's something which uh you know we're constantly reaching out to artists and uh, i remember telling richard that when we first started I had a rule of thumb when I'm reaching out to artists, which is every 10 offers that I make to people to come on the podcast, I'll usually have one response. So it can be a, a, you know, a difficult ratio to, uh, to negotiate. Um, so I'm hoping that when I connect with an abstract artist, I'm looking forward to that conversation because that's something which uh, will be, I think, quite insightful in ways which maybe haven't been covered yet maybe i'm not you know i can imagine there'll be lots of overlap that's also part of the fun the other thing that i'm looking forward to is more maybe galleries or curators or frame makers. just kind of you know don't get me wrong i love painters but because the painting 
industry has different levels to it. One of the things you mentioned when we first discussed this idea was to have artists and frame makers and curators and gallery owners, which is something which really excited me because I can't think of another podcast that focuses solely on those things. So that's really, um, I don't know, I think that should be a goal uh, for next year. And that's something I'm keen to try to make happen. And the third thing which I know I'm going to make happen is to come and meet you in person and to have an episode where we're sat with each other in the room chatting because that's something I was hoping to do this year and it just wasn't feasible for whatever reasons. So next year I can't. And you see I'm not just a torso on the screen. <laughs> yeah, same here. I think there'll be kind of a height check as far as like how tall are we? That'll be interesting. So yeah, I'm, uh, I'm excited cool. for those things. Yeah. Yeah. Good, good. So, um, yeah, we're doing this episode really to talk, just reflect on what we've done with the podcast and, um, you know, to talk about, you know, art and ourselves and, um, you know, to just see, sort of revisit uh, our initial interview. And, you know, it's interesting when you get to know someone over time you know, Simon and I have never actually met, which it is really interesting. It shows something about our virtual world nowadays. It, we do meet each other in these ways, and it's a very uh, a, a valid way of meeting. I remember during the pandemic, um, even now, you know, I'm, I'm sort of working, I work with a charity in London and I provide wellbeing workshops. For them and a lot of the people I knew before the pandemic, but I've long left London and, and moved to the countryside. But some of them I've never met, but I feel like I know them almost just as well as 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 the people who I did know, like IRL, you know, yeah. that um, and and arts. You know, in, in that sense, is is such a sort of a global thing now. I mean, I teach for uh, Penn School of Art, which is based in America, and soon Ohio Art Center as well. The things like Zoom, but Instagram and, and painting is such a such a universal thing, and mm. I never thought that. Um, you know, even a few years ago that the majority of my work would be selling in America and I'd have this sort of connection to the to the US just through through my work and how that has just opened up so so much. It's it's fascinating. Um, mm. and that's what it means to be an artist in in the 21st century. Mm. And in a digital world and in many ways in a post-COVID world as well. Yeah. No, it's it. I mean, for my post COVID experience, this has been the most positive and, and kind of, uh, kind of the, the most potential that is bubbling away and making me excited for the future is this podcast and, and what it offers as far as creating this amazing network of people Absolutely. who want to share their experience. Um, it may sound strange, but a couple of decades ago, I used to be a skateboarder and no matter where I'd be in the world, 
if there were a skate park or kids with the skateboards, I'd be able to go up and I'd have community. And I found the same thing with art because I wasn't an artist back then. But uh, when I started making art, it's the same thing when I see anyone painting or drawing on the streets or if I'm drawing or anything, you know, you'll find we're attracted to each other in the way of wanting to connect and to discuss things and you find community there. And it's just this lovely, as I said earlier, shared language really, where you use the same terms for, to describe certain things which other industries maybe don't or other parts of life won't yeah. you know, know how that's you know described or why it'd be called that and it's a nice um shared experience and absolutely comfort isn't it it really is and it's also attached to this great history as well um you know i say something on on my website um you know about uh, i'm just going to bring it up here yeah. just to just to sort of um, demonstrate that that connection. Um, so just maybe my fourth goal for next year is to make my own website. So yes. Yeah. I think it's it's good because it helps you. You know, it helps you sort of. You can survey yourself on the outside by doing it. Mm -hmm. um, so so I've said on on here just in a little art, artist statement that I'm primarily an expressive landscape painter working in the English Romantic tradition. I should say European Romantic tradition, really. Um, I feel a deep connection to the landscape and the artists who always or who also chose the sky, sea and land as their source of inspiration. Turner, Constable, Sego, Dobinet and Corbet. The gaps of generations of hundreds and hundreds of years matter little, regardless of what has changed in this world, the technological advancements and societal shifts. The landscape is always there as something eternal, the ever-changing muse, always present, yet never the same. So what I'm saying is that I'm kind of sort of, them, they're my peers in a sense, even though they're, you know, the generations and generations before. And I think, the more one gets into art, it's that whole community of your contemporaries who's practicing now. And again, that's what we're doing through, through these podcasts. But then all of those strands within the historical context of it, that it's, it, it's just a fascinating thing. Mm. And to be working within a tradition and to be borrowing from that and then you see another artist you admire and then they're referencing this artist or some of them I've never heard of because it's a very different painting style mm. but it kind of connects us both now in the past but also in the future by helping to disseminate this information and to create work that does then influence you know future artists or uh, it just amazes me. It's fascinating. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I, I must admit, it's there's someone who I used to refer to as a mentor. Now I refer to her as a friend because she doesn't love the term mentor as much as I will attribute yeah. you know, my artistic growth to her assistance. But um, and when I talked to her about this podcast, 
she always says this is the best education you could possibly ask for and because i have the privilege of sitting in but also i edit the podcast so therefore anyone who refers to an artist i look them up and it'll be a cursory bit of research it won't be you know a deep dive but it's familiarizing myself with names with eras and with movements and then we also have this amazing feature of people's color palettes which is another part of my education to see the hue difference to hear the explanation how the palette develops how it lends to each other and the transparencies and the varnishes and different things which are um considerations of different types of painting which until you experience it you don't have that first-hand knowledge but before experiencing it you can glean insights from the podcast which is why it's so aptly named and it has that just beautiful essence of of kind of truth underlying all of it because artists want to share their experience there's no gatekeeping for this kind of conversation and and i just i i love it i think it's just fantastic yeah. really nice and like you're saying with it i mean a lot of artists say, well, I don't know what I'm going to talk about, mm. but I know myself from this. It, you start asking an artist about which colours they use, and you know, they're happy to talk about it because it's it's very much a, a personal thing, and it's often quite a private thing because it, being an artist is, in many ways, a solitary pursuit. Mm. You know, there are artists um, like Tushar and, you know, with the plein air groups who will go out together and, you know, have that kind of um, more community-based experience with painting. I tend to be the opposite. I'm a, you know, I'm a, a solitary artist and all of these little things, Maybe I'm not because I go and I, I teach painting. So people, you know, are asking me these questions about the colours, you know, all of that kind of stuff. And in many ways, that's my respite from the solitude. But, you know, each artist has, through experimentation, through trial and error, through, like myself, buying every colour possible to then sort of come down to, to a few colours that I use. These are like such important things to to be able to share and for people to, to learn from. Mm. I remember buying or borrowing from the library or going in whatever shop and flicking through, you know, all of these artists' manuals and and books, you know, the essentials of oil painting and it's pretty much the same information in all of them. Mm. And you can never really get a grasp of it for some reason. There are books that have helped people along the way. Mm. But, it, you know, to me, I never really got it. But from being down in Cornwall, when I first started to get really interested in painting, I was at art college at the time, meeting two professional artists, very well established in their career and being in the same studio complex building as them, and then just welcome 
they made casually into their studios, seeing how the paints were laid out, seeing how things were stored. I learned more from that than I ever did, first of all, on my degree, of course. Um, second of all, from any, any books. So by having artists talk about this, and yes, we're not in the studio with them, but it it is, it's like gold dust in many ways. So it is for me, you know, and it was for me. So um, I try to, through teaching, um, whether they're weekly classes like I do, or online, or through this podcast, or any questions people ask me on my website or Instagram, is to give those little gems of, of information, not this whole view that a book may give you, but mm -hmm. someone might want to know what colour did you use up in that cloud? Mm. I can tell them that. And that can then unlock something for them. Um, yeah. So that's, you know, it's no, showing. You have to try these things to to find out how it works. I'm, I suppose I've, I've got a weird philosophy I think it's since I was, I used to go to a lot of life drawing classes, far less these days, but I used to go to so many all over the country. And one that I went to quite often would have, it would be old people, but they would, some would be very good artists. Some would be, you know, less good. And when I'd sit next to ones who weren't as good, they were still amazing company, lovely, so funny to sit next to. But I'd sit next to them and I'd be in this same class for say a year every week sit next to them and they wouldn't get any better and mm. i thought practice is essential but it's it can't be the only you need more than just practice because this person showed up every time on time did the drawings filled the page with tone and fell short every week now i love this person and they would ask me for help and i'd try to one time I just said, can I draw on top of your drawing to show you the decisions that I'd make differently? Because I thought I want them to push through this blockage and it's sometimes harder to describe. And I want to just show them what I would do differently so that they can do the same thing. And uh, I even introduced them to different pencils and just trying to do anything to try and break this habit. But it's a mindset of maybe a lack of you know, self-critique or whatever it is to, to kind of stunt your growth. And I'm very grateful to not have that, you know, uh, that kind of limitation in a way. But I also, I do need the conversation. I need the theory. And it's not all theory, but I do think it's a, a blend of the two because without some ideas to introduce to your own habits, I don't think you'll necessarily always experiment and discover i think for you 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 experiment more you talk about that when i interviewed you with not everyone never every artist does that um what are your thoughts on that anyway is that do you agree yeah i i mean again everybody's got their you know their own approach and on their own journey i mean i've never ever been to a painting workshop or done a course in painting I mean, I've got a degree in fine art, but believe me, they don't teach you any painting on that degree. Um, I 
am a big believer in experimentation and just keep trying different things, different things, different things. What will happen is that you will usually fail each time at those different things. But over time, things that did kind of work start gelling together. From, from teaching, I, and I'll explain you know, how I teach. So I'll come in and I'll come in with a different thing each time. So sometimes I'll bring in some photographs of some um, Constable oil sketches. So, right, we're going to look at Constable today, how he's doing these. Other times I'll just draw basic kind of thumbnail sketches on them. Right, we're going to do this. Or get some photographs and say, right, you can look at this photograph for two minutes and then turn it off. Switch the palette around. So sometimes it's you know, just three colours, sometimes it's four. Sometimes I say you're allowed just the brush, sometimes just the palette now. So I'm constantly switching this thing around. What I'm trying to do is get people to break out of habits. Mm. So I think it's it's important to take those risks and keep doing it over and over and over. If you if you're sort of doing the same thing each time and not getting any say better or being able to break through those things that's where you need to do something radically different normally what creates that radical difference for me is creative block where i'm like i can't do what i can normally do so i think i've got to do something completely different and, and that's what i do but i think this is where you know, either as an artist or um, as an artist working with a teacher or mentor or an artist friend or whatever, is that in your practice, you will get to points where there is a, let's think of a landscape, that there is a swollen river to traverse. You know, you've been going along just fine and you hit this with that. You know, how do you get over that? So, you know, there are a few ways. If you're working with a teacher, the teacher helps you create that bridge over it so you can go on to the next part. If you're doing it yourself, you have to take massive risks and break through what you normally do. If you're part of a, you know, with your artist mates, you've got friends, Ask advice, you know, just say, I'm stuck on this bit here. What do you think I should do? So there are a few ways and they never go away, those swollen rivers in the landscape. You know, the space between them may get greater, the better you get. When you first begin, you seem to be hitting one every, you know, 10 yards or whatever. Um but it's all about how you navigate and you break through those little things. So if you feel you're not improving, try something really radical. Mm. Um, you know, and that could be just, I think abstraction is a good way of doing it. Mm. So this is something I often do in, in my classes as well, is say, right, we're going to paint 
just abstract paintings today. So normally I'll start with like a horizon type thing because I know, you know, the horizon is important to me. I start it. But if I do an abstract, I'll do a either a vertical or a slight diagonal line to start. So it's completely outside of that Legend. comfort zone. Yeah. And then just, you know, build it up with a few lines and then just start laying, mm. you know, colours loose geometric way because it's not what I do but by breaking that spell of uh, being stuck you can find solutions in the alternative path mm. um, so coming back to ideas and theory and thoughts as, as well about it I think it's really important for that one is able to reflect on their work um, whether it's through writing or again talking to to other people about it, but you know I've got a real, quite a solid philosophy now behind what I do. It is trying to capture, you know, this emotional response to a scene, a landscape. There's something not quite resolved about it. It is almost as if you were to see it for the first time, your eyes open for the first time, and you, you, you know, the details are devoid. So it's a very romantic tradition of painting. Mm. And again, I'm referencing Constable Turner, um, you know, people like that. that that's what I'm trying to capture. And I think once you understand what you're trying to capture as well, it can really, really help you. Mm. Well, I'm, when you mentioned that you make abstracts, this is not something that you publish, am I right? Because I don't think I've no. seen No. Are you are you not happy enough with them or is it just something which is a... It's no exercises mainly. I, before I started painting landscapes, I, I did paint abstract paintings. I was... Mm very inspired I think abstract painting was probably the first painting that I actually loved um, you know it's very into the abstract expressionists um, you know, particularly Rothko mm. um, I liked a lot because it, it was that sort of sublime kind of depth in it a, a real kind of sadness but you know overpowering kind of depth and emotion in there um, and painterly as well. Yeah. But I was also very into the St. Ives um, painters as well, Peter Lanyon uh, and people like that who you know, were very much abstract landscape painters. So you had those two movements going on, abstract expressionism and then in St. Ives, um, you know, Ben, ben Nicholson, Patrick Heron, um Peter Lanyard and all of those guys and it, that very Cornish thing and I could relate to that a lot more as abstract expressionism was was American even though it was mainly Europeans that, that sort of pioneered it. Um, but Richard Diebenkorn as well, massive influence. Um, so yeah, I mainly started with abstract paintings and it, a, a lot of it was experimental. I was doing doing these things and um, I may 
I may have to put in the video that you made, but I may be able to dig one out from somewhere. Um, but I used to kind of use unstretched, um, sort of unprimed raw canvas and pour like acrylic ink on it, but then place very flat, matte, kind of semi-geometric shapes of it so you had this like bleed coming out of them but composition was really important and what what i was trying to do is very much like i'm trying to do now is is comment on that that idea of you know both chaos and order of of structure and then organic um elements to it um it was only when i started to come out to see my family in Norfolk more from London. So my, my background is I grew up in the East Anglian Fens, very flat, just the horizon. That's all you're getting from the land pretty much. And these kind of ditches and dikes, which kind of carve it up. But then these huge skies. Um, I left to go traveling, spent most of my twenties traveling. Um, but based myself down in, in Devon and Cornwall, was there for about 10 years, and when I got into art down there, then ended up in London, was in London for about 12 years, um, and then finally moved here a couple of years ago. But what I was doing, I was painting these abstract paintings in London, and it was inspired by, you know, again, the St Ives stuff, but also the the abstract New York and, and California abstract expressionism. But I started to come out more to see my family in Norfolk. And to get here, I'd get the train. And it was through the fens that I'd grown up in, um, through Cambridgeshire. And, and uh, you know, it, it's completely flat. But the sky started to, to have this impact on me again. And then when I would get to Norfolk, I would go to, to the beaches and they would just be these in, incredible, like, vast spaces of drama. And I was starting to see them in an abstract way, thinking these are just the most basic of compositional frameworks. And then you've got all of this atmosphere and this this kind of poetry within them. So, so I started to paint um, landscapes more. But unlike it be, I'm not a plein air painter, neither an observational. I would say I am an abstract painter still, but um, you know I create these impressionistic elements in there from um, from observation, but indirect observation. Mm. So yeah. it. It all links up that that journey of, of you know both past, present, but also um, artistic experimentation and, uh, and development. I can see the abstraction currently in your words. What I was going to say is that I can see that because it's so exciting in your work to keep. It, I, I was thinking of it the other day when uh, I think it's the last episode when we spoke to Kim Eshelman and uh, and she loves your work just like you know 
all our guests and I do too. And when you look at your work, it's, you know, a, a, trying to find a, a flat, clear point where it's just pink and there is tonal interest in that pink and it's what makes everything so just juicy to kind of for your eyes you know you're just really getting so much nourishment from it it's lovely and like she said you've got this amazing sense of color where everything is it just works beautifully together so i can see how abstraction is part of it because it's so non-specific in a way but it's enough for everyone to inject their own personal uh, experience yeah. and feelings into it which is uh magic and it's that fine line um between it i mean you know to abstract is to kind of take from something and you know say with rothko for example rothko is all the way towards you know almost you know pure abstraction that there isn't necessarily a, a source material there to abstract from you know, mm. it's creating um you know and that is the development of you know abstraction in that sense, you know, but it, one could say, you know, cubism to some extent was the, the, the beginning of breaking that all up, you know, breaking up what you see, abstracting it. But all painting is abstract, you know, it's it, it simply is you, you are abstracting from reality or from study or, or whatever. But what happens is that that development, you know, comes through and with abstract expressionism but it really becomes about just the the paint itself the materiality of the paint the um you know the depth of color the these kind of sort of things which are not representations of anything other than themselves to some extent um and the trajectory of that was it, it went off into different strands. So you had the Bay Area abstract expression, I think they're third generation, so Richard Diebenkorn and, and people like that, where they are representational painters, but they're also creating these abstractions as well that are, again, going back to the landscape and back to fig, fig, uh, figurative work and... And stuff, but then you have these other strands which go off into minimalism, where the you know a lot of the minimalists wanted to take the any emotion like Rothko's emotions out of it and just push it towards these material things, and then to the point where you're taking pretty much any human impact out of it you know in, into these things so taking that back to 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 what i do you know again it's that romantic tradition and why for example i relate to rothko yeah. howard hodgkin a british painter who died a few years ago is also a massive influence as well i don't know if you know him, but he's um he he painted um very bold brushwork um they're not abstract and he would never call them abstract they are often still lives or figurative work or landscapes 
um, but he would kind of paint on the frame. But he, he would give them the most interesting names. He, he was famous with a lot of a lot of poets and writers. So he's, you know, um, but he, he was a massive influence as well. Where you could create these paintings, which you know, the, which were very emotional uh, and poetic and romantic. And you could push them even more towards abstraction or bring them more towards realism. But there was always that sort of, you know, liminal kind of area between between the two. Um, yeah. So for me, like, art history and the painting in general has always been a massive, massive and important part of what I do. Um, and I will always say to two painters and to, to people I teach, you know, learn about painting, mm. not just how to do it, but the names of artists. So you can relate your work very much within a, a, a tradition, not as a selling point or to compare yourself to mm. um, these artists, but be influenced by them. And again, people could look at my work and think, well, you know, how is he influenced by Giorgio Morandi, for example, still life painter? It doesn't matter if your work doesn't look anything like it. You know, these painters can teach you a lot. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Well, there's a couple of things. There's, I was kind of, I was wondering about if you can, I don't know how briefly this would be or whether I should have asked you this earlier, but I'm curious as where the painting from imagination did, did that did that come from the abstraction and therefore you didn't find that's where it originated yeah 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 it came from it came from the abstraction i mean you know i can paint from observation yeah. uh, and and often do especially still life paintings um but for me it is i mean i've got a strange like memory you know, it's not photographic memory, but, but I can remember scenes that happen. You know, a good example of this is during the lockdown when I was getting the train out of London a lot, I, and I was the only person on the train. And I would just get these glimpses. I remember like winter time, so the sun setting early, or I'm going out there early and seeing the sunrise, but just getting these glimpses out of the windows, the trains rushing by these landscapes. And I can picture them now. It's these like flashes you get, but they're not quite resolved. I mean, you won't be able to tell what tree that is or, do you know what I mean? It's that kind of thing. So I'm able to retain a lot of those things. Mm. Um, boiled down to 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 their essence so even though i say i'm working from like imagination or mem well imagination it is it is a memory but it is so abstracted mm. 
And that's what I'm trying to chase and trying to capture. Yeah. There's another element within it that is, you know, I, I am a process painter as well. So, you know, I may start with a painting that I think is going one way, but then it becomes something completely different. So for me, it's very much part of the process. So that's why, in a way, I'm not so much an observational painter, even though I can be and will sometimes paint um, plein air or you know, do observational sketches. But for me, if a painting, like if the cloud over there is not working there, I'll just shove it over here. <laughs> or if the horizon line is, I'll just move it down. Or it will go from you know, a very moody, oh, I, don't, I don't have it here, but I've got a, a painting of a moon, just a little crescent moon. Now that started off as a seascape, and I was there for hours just messing around with it, getting so frustrated. And I thought I've had enough, so I just, on the brush, just, it's like a violet, black, grey kind of colour, and I just thought, screw it, I'm going home. And I just covered the whole panel with it, it's like a 10 by 10. And then just as I turned around to look, I saw out of the corner of my eye out the studio window, this dark sky, the cloud coming across, and then just a sliver of the moon. And in five minutes, you know, what had taken me, three, nearly four hours of absolute frustration and about to give up. In five minutes, I just went, mooning, done. And it's one of my favourite paintings. So so that's what I mean about being like a process painter, that, you know, I will resolve what happens uh, in in what way it goes. You know, some, it, I could have quite easily just walked away from that. And not seeing that moon, but but I did in that moment. So I say I'm not an observational painter, but in that moment I was. Mm. You know, it was very much but in it, the moment, which I love. Yeah, whether it's the process yeah. or a glimpse of an obscured, yeah, reflection or or kind of bit of light, it's that's really powerful as well to be able yeah. to inject that where you need it as opposed to the world dictating to you what's necessary. That's you right, can yeah. Grab things and change them at your will, which is, yeah. I think, more creative in a way. Not to give a more or less, that may not be true, no. but I feel, I feel there's a freedom there which other artists don't necessarily have. I certainly struggle at times. And Gino Santamaria is one of our guests who said that his friend put his hand on his shoulder and said, I give you permission to move these equilateral trees, yeah. move them, give them, you know, more distance yeah. in places yeah. Yeah. together. Yeah, I think it's, you know, it's very true. And I, even, you know, observational painters have to rely on memory to some extent. I mean, you can't look at something and paint at the same you have to look and then you make the brush run, you look. So yeah, the memory is a shorter amount of time, but there's still that there, but you mm. also have to rely on, uh, you know, that intuition of shifting things, of shifting tones. Mm. You know, I think one thing where I 
you know, and I'm not a, um, far from having any rules in painting, something I'm, I'm a, you know, a, an anarchist when it comes to painting, what, however you want to do it, do it. But there is one thing I see a lot, and that is because it's from my own experience, but also because I meet a lot of people who come to my workshops or classes because they've got this issue, and that is copying from photographs. It is very, very hard, and one is always, always disappointed. If you haven't learned the sort of painterly skills from risk-taking, from um, direct observation or painting from memory or imagination. When it comes to then painting for photographs, what you're going to do, you're going to try and copy one medium in that sense, photography is a medium, and you're going to try and render that with basically mud in oil, and these crude sticks, it is very, very difficult to do. And so many people who, who I've taught have, have come from doing that and they're always frustrated because they're trying to do these little details. Um, so what I do is say, here's a photo, look at it for a few minutes. You can't look at it anymore, remember it. Um, I think I'm much better at being able to work from photographs now myself if I need to, but so much is lost because you're comparing your painting, your work of art to something which is almost as close to perfect as a way of capturing something. Let, you know, let painting be its own thing. And I think this is what Impressionism teaches us that at the time of Impressionism, and maybe my timelines are out a little bit here, but they're pretty close to, you know, photography started to become much more um, available and portable as well. So you could depict a landscape, and it was usually wealthy landowners that wanted that depiction of their landscape. You could depict it almost perfectly, albeit in black and white, with a camera. Mm. There's been this thing in painting, you know, in the history of art for, for centuries, it's like the death of painting. It's this kind of meme that goes throughout it. You know, photography did provide, it did prove an existential threat to certain elements of painting, but Impressionism really created painting for painting's sake, that paint is its own medium and its own language and is in many ways much more versatile and um, open to individual expression than photography. And you see this kind of happening a lot. And I think if we look now with, say, with the the rise of plein air painting, again, is a sort of a revival of it in the past decade or so. You know, there's a, there's a kind of a, a parallel there with smartphones. Now, what's interesting as well is that the plein air painters through Instagram, through, you know, whatever, are able to also utilise 
those um, those smartphones. But we've had it a lot where digital photography as well was a kind of a, you know, the death of painting again. Now AI and all of that stuff. You see this debate. It's like, well, you know, AI will kill painting, but you know, painting is and will always be like this. Um, you know, this thing that we're fascinated by is so primal from Lascaux cave art to now that it it is a kind of a thing that yes, technology always threatens it, but it it always manifests in its own way. Um, mm. And it's it's fascinating. I went off on a tangent there, but no, it's all right. I think we're butting up against time. I mean, I agree. I was going to say vinyl has come back into yeah. fashion and it's far more expensive than it used to be. So yeah, yeah. sure, if we have that kind of arc yeah. with painting and AI, yeah. it will come back. And just... So, yeah, that is something which uh, AI, I haven't seen it yield the results yet, which, I mean, obviously I'm fascinated by what it does do, but I don't see it necessarily being the threat it's being described as yet. It may it may happen, and if it does happen, I'm sure that it will be the CD to vinyl or the digital file to what oh, vinyl is, where people yeah. want that experience of vinyl again, which you can't get with a digital file. Well, I would I would compare it more in a way to you know for on the music thing that you didn't have these individual musicians anymore that would creates you know these these kind of uh, you know tortured but beautiful songs you wouldn't have these kind of shambolic bands that mm. you know were, were were chaotic and you know dysfunctional to some extent AI would create creates the, the perfect music and you know, you, you wouldn't need bands or even musicians anymore because they would do it. Mm. But people would always want, you know, that kind of experience. And, you know, I think that it would only give rise to a kind of revival of punk or something like that, that would actually take it back to its kind of raw roots and maybe that's you know initially how punk may have have come about because i know you had a lot of like prog rock and you know things were becoming much more digital and then synthesizers and you know a lot more polished and you know punk was that thing it's like you know just give that guy a bass guitar he can't play it doesn't matter it's (laughs) about that energy um and, you know, I think painting, in a way, very much like Impressionism, was, it was both a, um, an embracing of the technology, i.e. paint tubes. Um, the impressionists could go out and paint um, the, the trains around France were starting to, make it so um, painters could leave um, the city and go out to um, the countryside. There's a great painting by Gustave Courbet 
and he's not an impressionist, pre-impressionist. I think it's called the Barbizon School. Um, but he, great painter of the sea, Corbet. He lived in Paris, I think. Um, but then they had this train that suddenly started going to the coast. And there's a painting of this lovely seascape with this little guy like standing on the beach with his, you know, his hat in the air. Because so, he's got that freedom, he's, you know, embraced the technology um, of the time to do that. But I think also that, you know, Impressionism was a, um, a revolt against both the old order, the salon, and then, you know, some of that new order of the technological advances with photography and things like that. So, you know, whenever I see like AI art and, and stuff like that, I mean, it's just like, you know, is that all you've got? Yeah, it's kind of clever, but but where are those brush hairs in the final painting? Mm. You know, where is that? that history of this making on the surface. And I think that's a massive important thing for me is to show the history of the, the painting on its surface. You know, if you kind of look, you can see where I've got frustrated and come to that, that river I need to cross and then, you know, maybe gone off and stomped around the block a bit, got frustrated, found that solution. You know, AI will never ever do that. Yeah. Uh, plus, I think it was was it Erin Spencer who said that uh, it's part of the legacy of painting. You know, for her, it's uh, her connection with the UK and her European roots, which she really taps into to give yeah. this quality to her painting. Absolutely. And if you have generations and generations of AI, it'll surely be lending from those experience because without it you don't have story and you won't have any kind of roots to tap into so it'll only be pulling from the experience of yeah. the analog in order to yeah. make something oh definitely yeah and look i mean artists are you know their art is a kind of a, um you know, it's their whole experience is put into those things. And like with Erin, and I mean, that's how I first connected with Erin. She was actually, you know, sort of painting in the area I grew up and I saw she was American. And, you know, so then there's that bond and that connection there that I recognise these guys and then can see it in her work there in, you know, on Rhode Island or, or Utah. Um, we all have these these different threads and strands to to who we are as painters, and I think this is why it makes it so fascinating and, and unique. But also with the viewer as well. I mean, you know, the just seeing how my work connects with certain people in a very profound way, whereas you know, for a lot of people, it doesn't, and that's fine you know but it's there's some crossover between artists you know that and you know, some people like really can tune in to 
they say my work, Elaine's work, is it parallel? You know, it's it's such an interesting thing that <clears throat> taste and experience and aesthetics and but also knowing a bit about the artist that you know the artist isn't just this you know just this person that people are, are kind of fascinated about them in many ways because they're often living very different lives to how many people live. Mm. You know, I feel very fortunate and grateful to make all of my money off either selling paintings or teaching painting. You know, I mean, it's, it's a crazy thing. I mean, I've done every job you can think of, mm. every minimum wage job you can think of. <laughs> um, you know, to be able to get to this this point of doing it took a lot of you know, risk-taking things. So, it, you know, it creates a, an interesting story and that can often be seen in, in the work as well. Um, you know, so, going back to AI, you know, it's, it's no, it's nothing really. Mm. It's, it's, just it's just a different place, isn't it? It's just not... Yeah doesn't seem to overlap that much with what we're talking about a lot. And I feel like people, though, will say there's no place where it won't penetrate and take over. But I can't, until I see it, I can't see it. I just can't even visualise it. Uh, I mean, not to keep bringing, I mean, I, I like keep bringing up people who we've had as guests, but not to keep referring to them. But it made me think of uh, Tad Rett had a, an interesting overlap because he'd used digital um yeah tools in order to develop certain things and make decisions and that's what my brother does and because his his brother works in animation i found it quite an interesting um personality to kind of consider as an artist because as you said they're not a monolith they're all you know yeah. plowing their own furrow really so it's to see uh how tad was very driven and had craftsmanship with his his dad's making the um is it attaché case that he was making? Uh, the shard box. The shard box, sorry. Yeah, that's it. Uh, and he's, yeah, to have this kind of creative but very kind of old-fashioned uh, roots behind his work practice and yet his modern and youthful approach to considerations and different ways that he developed his painting and his discipline of going out and painting all the time to try and mature his palette and his appreciation for the world was just a lovely experience and it opened my eyes again to the different ways that people find what makes sense and how they're going to be who they are. Absolutely. And that's, again, it goes back to that thing of experiment, experiment, experiment. Mm. If, if one is going to go to, you know, courses or life drawing classes or what, you know, whatever it is, go to different ones, try different things, you know, go to one where they say, you know, you've got to do it with your eyes closed or something like that, you know, because yeah. it's through that. And with Tad, you know, it's it's fascinating because he's so young still, but, you know, he said he went out west and he, he just painted plein air mm. until he got good at it. Yeah. Um, and using Photoshop and things like that, that is, you know, it, that comes from that saying, I'm going to try that. 
you know, there are no rules. And I think it was interesting listening to your um, episode last time with um, Andrew Tischler, you know, saying, you know, about these people that say, oh, you know, he used the projector. It's, you know, this this is the kind of thing that I think keeps, you know, people stuck in many ways. Now, there are people who are uber-talented, absolutely amazing, and can do things, you know, like it's dropped, it's part of their DNA. But that is very, very rare. I know someone who, who is talented like that, but it is extremely, extremely rare. Most artists try different things and different approaches. They destroy lots of canvases, they try many, many different things. And, you know, that could be projecting, it could be Photoshop, it could in the future be AI. In my quest to learn more about colour, and I don't know if it done me any good in the end because it was just a computer doing it. There, it, there were a couple of, like, I guess they were, some form of kind of AI in their own way. Um, but there was a website called Central Logic and another one on the, the golden acrylic uh, paint website, where what, what you could do, and I'll use the Central Logic one as an example, you could go and you could either buy or, or um, use the free ones, where they give you like a palette of colours, say Winter and Newton, oil, artist oil colours, and you could pick ultramarine blue, um, and I'll use my colour palette, my basic palette, ultramarine blue, um, rose madder, cadmium yellow, burnt sienna, white, and you click those. And then you could upload a photograph in there, and you could use a little thing to tap on certain areas of the photograph. And what it would do, it would show you 30%, ultramarine blue, 10% rose matter, and all of that. And I spent like about a year <laughs> to measure wow. these things out to try and get them right. Now, it didn't teach me how to mix paint, but I had to go through that process. And I remember, you know, you had, after a while, you had to start buying, you know, things. So I'd sort of just get all of these credits to do it. But I, I wanted to learn. Mm. You know, I wanted to learn. So I used that technology yeah. to learn. And, you know, if anything, it visually showed me that the tone could be made out of those. Mm. Um, you know, there's all kinds of stuff that, you know, whether it's projecting or even tracing. I remember... At one point, I really got into, I mean, this was you know, 15 years ago or something, but I got into this like image transfer by using pho photocopy and then basically using clear acrylic medium on a surface, putting the photocopy on there, letting it dry, and then using a, a damp cloth on the back to rub away the paper and, mm. and it transferred. And I would kind of make paintings out of that, mm. you know, these weird like abstract textures and figurative elements. And you know, I went through a stage of doing that, went through so many stages of getting like um, 
you know, trying to make this sort of almost clay type stuff to stick on the canvas to put textures. You know, the, if you just go in and you go into a class and you do the same thing every week and, and not getting anywhere, go and do something crazy. <laughs> Try something different. I find myself going more old fashioned. I mean, next year I already have a trip planned with one of the farmers who I uh, painted from uh, my recent project. And we're going to a place called Paris Mountain on Anglesey. And that's a place which is a copper mine and it has natural pigments, just very rich. And I've met an artist who she collected them in little sacks, grinds them up with the pestle and water and then uses them with egg tempera. And I've done egg tempera once, so I know I can do it. And I'm excited to get natural pigments and to maybe even paint something from Paris Mountain because it looks like yeah. something from a science fiction film, you know. So uh, it's an exciting prospect for next year. One thing I'd like to say before we do run out of time, though, yeah. um, a couple of episodes ago, we, uh, we've we already discussed, I had Ralph Sanders uh, and Finna Park Gallery. And one of the mistakes I made, and I try to avoid this if I can, I mislabeled one of the paintings and it was an important painting <laughs> he was talking about a significant the price no it was well it wasn't that no that was oh you mislabeled it in the thing yeah I mislabeled the actual name of the painting which is important because the Cuffin Williams is just hilarious not only the price being wrong the fact that it was just, wasn't even hung on the wall it was on the floor when I well. saw it. but he does still have Cuffin Williams drawings in the gallery that are five thousand pounds so i could conceive it being hundreds of thousands i don't know how much it was but it must have been because it was a large painting i'm very curious as how much it was now because i misread that price tag anyway the painting which i made a mistake on i'd like to correct now and amend and show the pictures i called a painting which he was talking about by kevin sinnott was running away with the hairdresser yeah. this is that picture the picture which I showed was one which he owned, which is by Kevin Sinnott. And I think he told me it was called Echoes, but it was labeled as Running Away with the Hairdresser, which is a different painting that I have seen in person, ironically, at or coincidentally, at Cuffin Williams, an art gallery with a Cuffin Williams uh, statue outside. I think it's uh, a Cuffin Williams gallery on Anglesey. And I'd seen that painting, Kevin Sinnott's painting, and photographed it with my German friend who I worked with this year. And her and I were looking around discussing the paintings. It was just the two of us in this exhibition space. And I saw this Kevin Sinnott painting and said to her how much I loved, how impressionistic it was and how much you can see the environment and the story, even though it's very loose and, and just, you know, not a significant detail in there. And uh, I photographed the piece and then made the mistake when I talked to Ralph. So that was tricky because I knew there wasn't a way of, fixing the video after the fact yeah. on YouTube. And uh, I didn't do it on the uh, Andrew Tischler part two. I didn't do it on uh, Kim Eshelman, which was last week's episode. So for this week's episode, the, the <laughs> time, Christmas, I'm at least saying this correction. Uh, yeah, I mean, look, these things are bound to happen. <laughs> I mean, it's... Yeah, yeah, I try to avoid it if I can. It's Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so... What time is it? So yeah, it's it's been um, fantastic talking. It's, during the podcast, most people haven't, you know, heard Simon and I. We we often have little meetings and yeah. and and chats, but it, you know, it, it's great 
because we're both so passionate about art and about these things and about learning and um you know we could actually keep talking probably for another few um, yeah but but we won't and we'll yeah. leave it you know i think maybe for the podcast in the future it you know it would be great if we could get like maybe a, a few guests on at once and we have these more sort of relaxed and casual type things you know um because it's good like people bouncing idea and just letting the conversations go where they may you know? yeah yeah we'll see i mean I'm, I'm excited to see what happens the panel that we're working on is an exciting target for next year. So, yeah yeah so we've um probably, probably won't announce it just now just you know just in case but we've got um we've got an interesting uh, panel coming coming up um but if anybody has any suggestions for us um you know kind of shows you'd like or information you'd like whether you'd like us to talk about uh, historic artists i mean there is you know an element there i mean there's all kinds of you know academics and stuff who study particular artists and could tell us more if that's something or you know whether it's more about you know elements around it, sometimes the business side of art what you know how you know how do i make money out of it how do other people do it you know or if it is more around, you know, those kind of more philosophical elements as well. Yeah. You know, what are, how do you sort of build that philosophy around your art and mm. and grow from there? Because I think it's very important that you have something. If you're inspired by something, you are going to make much better art. You know, absolutely it's as simple as that. well thank you very much to everyone who has commented and viewed the podcast it's fantastic and yeah. as always i really appreciate uh you richard and you know sharing your experience and your work is always a pleasure so thank you very much and thank you simon as well i mean it's been a great journey so far and, uh, and i look forward to the next part of it um and i'll say as well to anybody listening or watching do um, like and subscribe. Now I sound like a, a proper YouTuber. Uh, do like and subscribe. Um, if you're listening on um, Apple Podcasts, Spotify or anything like that, do try and give us a rating because it helps. Um, I think we're quite for fortunate because we're in a very niche thing and, you know, there aren't that many painting um podcasts out there and the fact that we've got painting in our title mm. if you google painting um, sorry if you search painting in apple Podcasts, it actually comes up however like ratings leave a review mm. um, give us five stars or whatever um, yeah it, it all helps and when we're on patreon we'd really appreciate your support even if it's like enough for a cup of coffee a month for a pint. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it all helps. But yeah, fantastic. Yeah. Lovely talking to you, Richard. Yeah, you too, Simon.